Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today, much like previous guests, Dan Green and Tony Taylor, the guests we have lined up is going to be a featured trainer at a couple of different live events uh, for Virtual Academy. We're going to talk more about that as the episode goes along, but you guys can always stay up to date with all the future events hosted by Virtual Academy just by going to virtualacademy.com and clicking on the bar at the very top that says events. Someone else who will also be presenting at those training events is none other than our very own host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Well, you know, we were talking before we, we logged on here how uh, our guest is in Florida right now and you're in Tennessee and I'm in Michigan, yet I am the one with the highest recorded temperature for the day. And that simply is unacceptable, Brent. It's a backwards day, apparently. All things are going to go crazy from here on out. Well, well speaking of crazy, today was uh, my, my kid's first day of school, uh, both a happy day and a sad day because yeah, you recognize this. You and I are a lot alike in this area. These go by so quickly. And I, I was going through some of the old first day of school pictures and Connor, my, my third in line chronologically, uh, you know, you've got the little sign there that says, hey, what are these are my favorite things. This is what great uh, a few years ago. I think it was this third or fourth grade one. Uh, it says what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> it was out of school. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, that's a focused and, and career-minded boy right Well, there. I'm just going to say he's been very consistent because that message has not changed. It may not show up on the board, but my boy definitely wants to be out of school. I only have one more first day for my uh, for my son, so I'm, uh, it's going to be a rough uh, couple, of, couple of years for me, I think. I think you're right, man. But, you know, life, it does go on. And our guest today, we're going to talk about that, you know, how you go through a career and how your life changes it, then it, it morphs into something else. It's just like our relationship with our kids. They're dependent on you for everything. And then they, they become more and more independent. And then you become less of a parent, more of a friend. And all those are good phases, but you miss them when they're gone. So, yeah, that's why it's very important to be present in the moment to appreciate all those moments as they come along. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So why don't you go and introduce our guest here? I do think that maybe he's done a little bit more morphing than you and I have, because perhaps he's been around a little bit longer. <laughs> all right. Well, our guest today is a retired captain of the St. Charles Parish Sheriff's Office in Southeast Louisiana, where he served for over 35 years. Well, he's certified as a expert witness on police training tactics and use of force in U.S. District court and has provided expert opinions regarding use of force, emergency vehicle operations, and policy procedure and protocol issues. Since retiring over a year ago, he's created his own consulting company that provides use of force analysis, course development and instruction, expert witness and consultation services to law enforcement agencies and legal professionals. It is our pleasure to welcome on his vacation of all days, uh, Captain Mark Candies. Welcome to the podcast, Captain. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, I just had to point out what you pointed out right then. It takes a lot of dedication to go and do one of these uh, on your vacation because there are times and I'm not going to name names, but part of our little group of four that do this uh, podcast, it's hard sometimes to get people to do it on their day to work. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that Mark's willing to do it on He's his vacation, in. right? Yeah. yeah. I, I just want to uh, give our, our listeners kind of an idea how we met. 
when I say met, we met over the phone because our, our mutual friend, Jimmy McLeod, connected us for the possibility of teaching. I, I remember our first phone conversation. You know it's a good phone conversation when you take notes. And I had, I had a page of notes from our time together. Yes, as did I. Uh, it was a, a very good conversation. And Jimmy Jimmy is good people. He's a really good guy. And uh, I got a call and he was the uh, the representative for Virtual Academy in, in our area when I was still, uh, before I retired, still full-time at the sheriff's office. And he came in and it didn't have to be a sales pitch. I mean, it was cop to cop. And uh, I saw the need, our, our agency saw the need, and it was happened to be right before COVID. So the timing was absolutely perfect. And uh, we became good friends that first day sitting in the office, sharing a cup of coffee. And he called me up, you know, that a uh, couple of weeks before we talked, he says, hey, I want you to put, I want to put you in touch with uh, Mike Warren. And I think you guys will hit it off. And uh, we're looking at doing a couple of things together. And I'm like, okay, tell him, give me a call. And uh, as the adage says, the rest is history. And so uh, let's talk about history for a second, if we could. And I like to ask my, my guests this question, because as Brent talked about, 35 years, that, that's a long time in any profession, but it's Correct. certainly a long time in this profession. But what was it that got you started in the profession to begin with? Believe it or not, I had absolutely positively no inclination to do police work. I graduated high school in 1981. Went to Nickel State University, which was a local college within an hour drive from my house. And as all young men in southern Louisiana at that time, the oil industry is is your career path. That's just where you go. Uh, I was a petroleum safety engineering major, working offshore and going to school at the same time because uh, there was, you know, I wasn't good enough to have scholarships. And, you know, dad was a blue collar worker. So there was he was like, hey, if you want to go to college, you got to pay for it yourself. But you can live home at home for free. But that's the best we can do for you, which was greatly appreciated. And in 1985, I came home uh, from work. I was offshore for two weeks, came home, got to the heliport, got in my car, drove to the office and turned in my paperwork. And there was a sign on the door, out of business. And uh, the oil crunch of 1985, it hit and everybody was unemployed. And the the, the old man that owned the business gave us severance checks and, and apologized that, hey, I, I lost five major contracts on one day. And, you know, I just can't stay open. So for the first time since I was 15 years old, I was unemployed for seven months. Had a hard time getting my old job back, bagging groceries at the local grocery store. Times were that bad. Saw uh, uh, a gentleman that had come there regularly, and he worked for the sheriff's office. Said, hey, why don't you come apply at the sheriff's office? And I'm like, are you kidding? He goes, oh, man, come on. They hire him for all kinds of things. So sure enough, uh, I applied, got hired. The the sheriff interviewed me, uh, Sheriff Johnny Marino. That was uh, in August 1st of 1986. And he said, yeah, I'll have you working in a jail and we'll just see how it works out. And I told him up front, look, Sheriff, I greatly appreciate it. I, I'll, I'll give you a 100 percent effort. I'm not looking to make this a career. I'm only going to be here long enough until the oil field picks back up and I go, go back to school. And he kind of grinned at me and smiled, old Italian gentleman. And he just kind of grinned at me and winked. And 36 years later, I'm still I was still there. <laughs> Life is what happens when you're busy making other. Plans. That's right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, and that was it. That's how I got started. It was it was just a matter of they were literally the only employers in the parish hiring at that no time. Kidding. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. It, we, we had a, a previous guest on here, uh, Phil Kearney. It sounds like his story was kind of similar to yours because he had his career path planned out. 
And literally right when he graduated, he found out that, uh, hey, you're not getting hired at this place. Took him down th- this other pathway. I- I'm one of those guys that likes to to think probably not deeply, but out there. How different would my life had been had this one single event not occurred? And you just think how much impact one yeah. event has had on your life, you know, thinking into the future, how much impact you had on somebody's life with one incident and and, uh, actually as we've talked previous that's kind of what i'm going to talk about later today it's amazing to me how things that seem to be small at the time often have this much larger and much longer lasting impact on our lives and i'm guilty of this and i i'm trying to to pass it along to my kids we we have to be patient with life you know we, we want things to happen and we want things to happen now but a lot of times good things happen or perhaps better things happen because we are willing to wait. I, I tell my, you know, all four of our kids now are all adults. Thank the good Lord. They're all have really good careers and great spouses and they're all doing well. But with my daughter, uh, she's now a high school teacher. I can remember when she was five years old, she was playing uh, t-ball, did not want to bat because she did not want to get the red dirt on her white tennis shoes. <laughs> that she was like five. And then by the time she was 18, 19, she was an all-state pitcher in softball. And she had signed a college scholarship to play softball at Jones County Junior College in Ellisville, Mississippi. And after every game, she was covered in dirt from head to foot. That seems like yesterday she didn't want to bat. Now she's getting ready to graduate college. It goes in an instant. And I I had a a mentor of mine tell me, he goes, well, you know, when you have those epiphanies, that means you did it the right way. So I I hope he's correct in that. Give it the best you can, but it, it goes by fast. It does. For, for our listeners who aren't, aren't familiar with the red dirt that we're talking about, I, I grew up in Georgia and, and I remember playing football uh, one game and it had been raining. And at the 50 yard line, there was this big, it was a mud pit and it wasn't really mm-hmm. a mud pit. It was a, a really wet clay pit, you know, white football pants, that red stuff not only stained my football pants, it stained the girdle underneath it and it stained the the, the underwear I was wearing underneath it. It's like, mm-hmm. how in the world does that happen? But that stuff has got penetrating power. Yeah, it, it's it's like the best paint you've ever seen. It dyes everything, <laughs> including your skin. Okay. Yeah. You know? Uh, I have a very good friend of mine who, a matter of fact, was my successor when I retired. I uh, became the director of training in, in St. Charles, uh, Darren Grove. Uh, his kids play trout soccer. And his wife had put a picture up over the weekend about soccer uniforms hanging over the air condition in the hotel room drying from one day to the next because they play travel soccer. And I can remember when my daughter played travel softball, taking all these 12 and 13 year old girls, the cutest things you ever want to meet and tell them, "Okay, game's over. Tournament's over. Go to the restroom, bring your swimsuits. And the moms would take the water hose from the field and hose them down (laughs) and then put them in their swimsuits to ride home because they were covered from head to foot in mud and dirt and they enjoyed it they, they they would have it no other way it was it was great times i often wonder if the folks that live in the the red uh, dirt clay states if they actually have farmers tans or if that's just the staining <laughs> left over from the red clay from where they're out working in it ah 
That's probably a good research project, Mike. I'm not sure. <laughs> I told you, buddy, it's a big old hat rack, but it's more than just a hat rack, this big old noggin here. You know, we, we, we've been talking about our kids and, and we've talked uh, with, with several previous guests about the impact that this profession can have on your family life and how it can really overtake your family life if you allow it to. Yes, uh, it can. I, I can remember, especially in, in South Louisiana, we have a lot of industry. So there's that three, two, two, three swing shift that works where, you know, every time you break shift, you're, you're working days, nights, two days on, three days off, two days off, three days on. It, it comes out to where you're working every other weekend and you work nights one weekend a month. And uh, there were many times where uh, I saw ball games, graduation, honor ceremonies, birthday parties in uniform, standing in the back with my earpiece in my ear, you know, listening to see if it was a hot call coming out or what have you. Many holiday dinners. Uh, I spent many Christmas mornings sitting in the living room in full uniform, uh, hoping nothing came out so I could at least watch the kids open their presents before before I had to go. It's funny when you consider normal because my kids thought nothing of it. It was like, hey, that's dad's got to work. That's just the way life is. They didn't know anything else. And we kind of adapted to it. My son, who uh, when he graduated uh, high school, went into the United States Marine Corps. And uh, after eight years came out, he's now a police officer. He's a deputy sheriff in St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office north of Lake Pontchartrain. And he's experiencing the same thing with his two kids, you know, still working that same type of shift. Uh, it, it becomes kind of a lifestyle and you just kind of roll with the punches. Well, it, it's funny in retrospect, when I look back, it probably bothered me a lot more than it bothered my kids. The kids, they, they adjust pretty well. It just ate at my stomach, missing those things or not being able to stay for the whole thing. Or And I'm guilty of this. I think the one that bothered me the most was Christmas. Not that I wasn't there, but because I would work uh, 7P to 7A on Christmas Eve. So I'd get home, you know, 730, quarter to late in the morning. Well, they're wanting to get up, do presents, and they want to do it slow and enjoy it. I wanted to get it done and get in the bed because <laughs> oftentimes you had to go back and work that night. But, you know, talking to my kids now, I think you said it right. That, that, that was the life for them. They, they understood that. That was the only life they understood. But I knew it should be different, and therefore it bothered me. Yeah. You know, we're, we're the adults and we can see, we have the understanding of what it'll mean further down the, down the road. And as they mature and their kids are taking that they take the moment as, as it is, and they just roll with the punches, uh, you know, that uh, adage that children are much more resilient than you give them credit for. Absolutely. You know? And you just used a word there, but I'm going to challenge you on it. You said we're the adults, but I want you to go back to the very beginning of your career. And think about the responsibility that, that had been given to you, the authority that had been given to you in your role as a law enforcement officer. I would be willing to bet the decisions you made then might be different than if you got to make those same decisions now when it came to going about doing your job the way you did your job. Without a doubt. <laughs> I sit back and, and as a, a director of training, as an academy instructor, as I'm teaching these newer recruits and, and shedding some light on, on the career, if they want to make it a career path and not just be a job, play back many incidents that I had and, and think to myself, what were you thinking? That was the most lame brain decision you've ever made in your life. But at the time, it seemed appropriate. At the time, it worked. And I was a rookie. I came out of the police academy in 1986, you know, October of 1986. And thankfully, 
the profession training has advanced considerably and we're much more of a profession today than we were 35, 36, 40 years ago. And, and it's like the old Marine Corps saying, you know, we improvised, adapted, overcame, did the best we could and went about our business. But yeah, uh, there's a lot of things that if I look back at it, go, I would never think of doing that now. You know, how often do you go to your son and give him advice or how often does he come to you with advice where you say, hey, don't do it the way I did. Do it this way instead. And does he heed that advice? Well, it has happened a few times, but as as any member of our family will tell you, he is a chip off their old block because he is as stubborn or more than I am. So uh, he 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 doesn't ask very often. More more so, it's not ask. It's more so I'll get a call and go, "Hey, you never guess what happened." And as he's telling it to me, I can think back twenty or thirty years and go, "You did this and you did that. How did you know?" Well. Uh, okay. You remember when I told you do as I say, not as I did, you forgot that part. <laughs> it happens, but yeah, yeah. We have had some, some very lengthy entertaining conversations on those things. Yeah. History seems to repeat itself. I think this kind of leads into an interesting discussion because I appreciate your friendship, but I really respect the work that you've done as a trainer. And, and I think one of the hardest things being a trainer is when you have somebody, and it doesn't even have to be your son, when you have somebody that, that made a decision that you know wasn't the best decision, but it worked for them. I don't want my people to fail, but oftentimes it would be much easier as a trainer to address certain activities and attitudes if they had tried something and it failed and they're coming to you, hey, I need I need a way to get through this. But when things work out for us, we as human beings are wired to say, hey, you know what? Next time something remotely close to that comes up, guess what I'm going to do? Exactly what I did this time. Mm -hmm. And it's dangerous in many cases because they had a good outcome. Yeah. And, and there have been several coaches, athletic coaches that have, have said, you know, when you win, you enjoy it. But when you lose, you learn. Very good. I've had several officers in, in, in my own personal experience, you know, um, and I, I, I tell my cadets especially, uh, you need to focus on a task at hand. Uh, it's an external focus. You need to focus on the objective of getting the job done. Get it done safely. Get it done within the law. Get it done as best you can within policy and procedure and make sure everybody goes home safe. Uh, it may not be pretty. It may not be perfect. We'll work on that later, but make sure you get the job done. And then later, three, four, five hours later, when you're writing a report or you're sitting in the coffee shop and then your hands start shaking and you realize how close you came to that being really, really bad, that's when you want to feel that, not when the incident is happening. I've had several cadets and the training staff, not just myself, but but the guys that worked with me and, and, and the ladies that worked with us, our adjunct instructors, have... Uh, Receive calls and emails like that. Hey, when we were in the academy and you said this was going to happen or I was going to feel this or this was going to go this way, you were right and it happened. That makes you as a trainer that tells you what you're doing is worthwhile and it's not just a job. It, it has a, a purpose that a lot of people just do not comprehend. It sounds like that your law enforcement career began almost as a fluke. You know, it just mm -hmm. happened to be the timing and running into somebody. What was it that drew you to the training world? 
I think you and I both agree that the training world, I hate using the word elite because it sounds like it means better than, but but I, I say elite in the sense that you're entrusted with other people and there's no greater trust than that right there. So what was it that brought you over to this world? Believe it or not, it was in, my, in the academy. Like I said, I got hired, got laid off in the oil field, got hired with the sheriff's office, was with them about three or four months. Hey, you're going to the academy. At that time, it was eight weeks up at LSU. And I'm still trying to figure out how to marry law enforcement and petroleum safety engineering. So I'm thinking, well, Louisiana <laughs> State, you know, and I'm thinking Louisiana State Police has a hazmat unit. So that might be what I need to do, you know, that kind of a thing. And I'm sitting in the basic academy, like week three, week four, the instructor was a guy who's who's well well known, Aubrey Futrell. Aubrey Futrell was uh, the director of training for Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries, and himself and uh, Coach Robert Lindsay, who was the uh, Bob Lindsay, a uh, no Bob coach. Lindsay coach, yes, coach and Aubrey Futrell were my DT instructors in my basic academy. And to tell you how good that class was, I still have bruises from that class thirty seven <laughs> years ago. Okay. But as I sat watching these guys teach and saw the, the sincerity and the enthusiasm, it wasn't just a job. They cared. When they told you, you don't want to do that because you're going to end up hurt or you're going to end up dead, they meant it. They truly took pride in what they were teaching and, and, and they took a responsibility to do whatever they could to ensure that you were going to go home safe to your family after every tour. It just kind of resonated with me. And I was like, you know, that's the kind of officer I want to be. As luck would have it, went back to the sheriff's office. I was working in corrections at the time. Uh, right after the academy, they transferred me to uniform patrol. About three or four years later, I, I uh, uh, was given an opportunity to become an adjunct instructor. I was the very first OC instructor in my agency. So no one liked me because I got to spray all 230 employees. Okay. And that was my first taste of instruction. And I can tell you when I went through that instructor school, the instructor bug bit me and it was a terminal life sentence. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. It just, it clicked. And I never looked back. Brent and Aaron are, are musicians. They, they downplay their abilities. They're, they're very good musicians. But I love listening to their their musical podcast called Crossing the Streams. And the reason is, is when these guys kick in and they start talking about music, their voices change, the tempo of their speech, it changes. To me, there's such a parallel between musicians that, that are dedicated to the craft and lovers of the craft and a good instructor. They behave in very similar, similar ways and they reach people the same way. That, that's yes. the thing that gets me. Well, I think it all boils down to being passionate about something that you, you know, you love doing and you just, it, it just comes out, you know, organically. Yeah. I'm going to put this out there because I know it bothers him now. You, you become a slave to training, you know, like, like musicians will often talk about becoming a slave to the music and, and Brent doesn't like that because it's not, it's not being forced to do something, <laughs> but it really is though. And I've never done drugs. That euphoria has to be very similar when you have that connection with a student like they had with you and you described it, man, I got this. It's lifelong. It's not going to end yeah. when I retire. Yeah, it's it's not temporary. It's like it bites you and it's like I'm done. That's it. I was very fortunate to be able to 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 
train with and be trained by those two individuals multiple times in my career. And they led me to, to other great instructors and great mentors. And that's the thing about good trainers. You know, we're the best thieves in the world because we will see something from another trainer and go, that's really good. I'm taking it. I'll give you credit for it, but I'm taking it yeah. because that, that'll work with, for my students. And, and as you said earlier about phone conversation, we first had where we, you were taking notes, I was taking notes. Uh, I don't think either one of us knew we were taking notes on the other, but we did. <laughs> I always take notes because I always find something in every class or every presentation, even if it's something that I can identify as I never want to do that. At least it's something that I've learned I don't want to do. You can always take something from everything you're in. And, and I have notes and stick and sticky notes and, and stuff, highlighted pieces of paper all, all over my office. And I, I got a paper clip them together with a general title. So I kind of know how to organize it. Uh, Brent, j- just to give you an idea, coach that he was talking about uh, is a legend at Ailita. And th- this year at Ailita, because of health problems and stuff, he wasn't able to travel. The one year I go. But guess what he did, though? He recorded the opening prayer and sent it yeah. so that he could be a part of it because I, it is. It's a lifelong bug. And, yeah. and that guy is just stinking legend in, yeah. in this community. Yeah. And it's because he cares. Yeah, uh, he was actually, and, and this is almost ancient history, he was present at the 1972 Howard Johnson's incident in New Orleans with yep. Mark Essex. Uh, and he has a bracelet that he wears that was made from the brass of the rounds fired on that shooting. There's a pretty famous picture in, in which, in the picture at that particular incident right there. And and listen, when you meet people like that, it would be like meeting Eddie Van Halen, somebody who is at the top of their game and to hold them in reverence. And, and here, here goes the per podcast shout out to Left of Greg. Uh, I was listening to uh, Left of Greg, one of their recent episodes, and they were had been in Austin, Texas, where Charles Whitman had been in the tower. And back in, I think it was 1966 and was shooting the students. I mean, as soon as I started talking about that, I got all excited because like four or five years ago, I got to meet the dude that went up there and took care of business. And he was a young guy, you know, then obviously he's older. But when you meet people like that, that have lived life with purpose and on purpose, and that's what training is all about is doing things with purpose and on purpose. It's just changes your outlook on things. Yes. Yeah, it does. You realize as you're talking to them that you are blessed to be able to be in this person's presence and be able to glean the information that they're willing to give you. And that's when you know it's a special person because they're not hesitant to share with you. They're wanting to give you everything they have. They're, they're not holding back. It's an, it, They're an open book and they will sit with you till, as I've done with coach, two, three in the morning many cups of coffee <laughs> yeah. and go through things. And it's lessons well, well learned that. And that's my thing now is trying to pass that on to as many of these, these younger officers as possible, because though it was decades ago, the lessons, the concept of the lesson is still true. You just have to kind of adapt it to today's world. The actual foundation of that lesson still holds true. It's, it's be as safe as you can and go home after every shift. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. You know, you talk about the impact, you know, they, they talk about the butterfly effect that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can uh, cause a tornado in Texas, you know, with all these different things that, that go. Think about that from a training perspective, because when you and I talk and I want to start talking about it, 
now the the incident that perhaps had the most impact on you you weren't necessarily right there the sense that we're talking about how did that start out kind of lead us down the path if you would okay i had uh, gotten transferred to the training academy in december of 2009 uh so i'm working on our training academy for four or five years and so now fast forward to 2015 it's april 16th 2015 and it's a thursday morning and i'm working a extra duty traffic control detail at a school before I start my shift at the academy. And we had a traffic officer, uh, Bert Hazeltine, who was doing the same type of detail at another school across the river. The Mississippi River divides St. Charles Parish in two. And so we have an East Bank and a West Bank. So I was on the East Bank. He was on the West Bank. And I'm working my detail. And it's, it's basically just stopping traffic to let the school buses come in and out, make sure the kids get to school safe. And I hear him on the radio kind of squawky and i hear him say subject has a gun stand by and i'm like did he say a subject had a gun in a school zone that doesn't happen here next thing i hear it shots fired i'm hit officer down and it caught me for a second i'm like i'm processing did that just really happen the movies as soon as uh, that that call comes out everybody immediately responds and they they respond in unison but really it's something that you have to you have to slow down and go because you're questioning yes. yourself. Did I just hear what I just heard? Because it's, right. so out of, it's so out of place. Because you know what you need to do. And that's get your butt in the car, hit the lights, the heck with your detail, and go to the scene. You're trying to make sure that I just hear what I thought I heard. I did. I get in my unit, cross the river. By the time I get to the scene, they're loading Bird into an ambulance. Now, let me back up a little bit. He was doing a traffic control detail where there's two schools side by side. One is a elementary school. One is a junior high, a middle school. So they take in at different times. And there's a 30-minute window between the take-in times of the two schools. He was sitting in his marked unit with the overhead lights on. First school had taken in. He's waiting on the second school. The buses to come in for the second school. And this individual, uh, who we later determined uh, after he was arrested, had severe mental issues, was upset because Bert didn't stop traffic to let him cross this busy highway. It's a, it's a U.S. highway that he was stopping traffic on to let the buses cross. Well, that's not part of his detail. Once the buses are in, he sits in his patrol unit, waits for the second school to take in. So this person came, got upset went down into the neighborhood behind where Bert's detail was, which is adjacent to the school, and retrieved a couple of handguns. He came back and got his attention. Uh, there's a convenience store there on a the corner. Got his attention. Bert realized this guy had a handgun. He gets on the radio, uh, you know, hey, this guy's got a gun in his hand. Stand by. Shots ring out. He starts shooting at Bert. He unloaded like two or three magazines at him. Bert gets hit. He goes down behind his unit. Traffic stops. Luckily, we had uh, an off-duty EMT was right there, pulls up on him. There's never a good day to get shot, ever. But if there was one, Bert picked the right day because this EMT was right there on off-duty EMT. And three miles up the highway was our training academy. And we were holding in-service training that day. And the class was downed officer rescue, which was TAC med. If you're ambushed, if you're shot, what to do to take care of yourself. The entire SWAT team was in training with our SWAT doc teaching the course. And they're three miles down the street. 
from the shooting. So the, the academy secretary runs in. She hears it on the radio because there's no radios in the classroom. Hey, I don't know what's going on. There's shots fired in Bert's school zone. He's down. Well, the entire academy empties out. The whole SWAT team responds in less than three to four minutes. He's okay. He took a round to the upper arm, uh, one to the upper, the upper chest right under the shoulder, but shrapnel hit him in the face. And as a result, he lost an eye. But we found out it's on a Thursday morning. So we find out by midday that Thursday, hey, he's going to recover. He's probably going to lose his eye, but he's going to make a full recovery. There's nothing life-threatening. He's okay. Well, I make it to the scene just as they're loading him in the ambulance and I see the SWAT doc and I was on SWAT. At the, I had just gotten off SWAT at the time, as a matter of fact, and I see the SWAT doc give me a thumbs up like he's going to be okay. And so I'm there with the other officers and we're doing what we need to do for the scene, for the investigation. Uh, so time goes on. Fast forward to that Sunday. That was a Thursday. It's now Sunday and I'm home uh, on my patio with my wife and I'm telling her, I says, uh, you know, Tomorrow, when I get to the office, I said, we've got to start scheduling the debriefs because I do the critical incident debriefs for the agency uh, with several other officers. I said, you know, we've got to start scheduling the debriefs for Bert shooting. And she goes, yeah, that's going to be kind of tough. I said, yeah, I said, but at least it's it's something that he survived. It's it's not like some of the other shootings we've had to do debriefings on where we weren't we weren't as fortunate. And as I'm talking about this, it's 1, 1.30 in the afternoon. My phone rings and I see his wife's name come up on my phone. Just a side story. I watch Mandy grow up. I watch her as a kid grow up. So I see her name pop up on my phone. So I answer the phone. I says, hey, hey, girl, what's going on? It's Bert on the phone because his phone was up. I think I would think it was in evidence, if I'm not mistaken. So he's using <laughs> Mandy's phone. And uh, he says, I'm doing great. I said, where are you at? He goes, I'm still in the hospital, but I'm sitting in a chair and I'm looking out the window. I said, man, that's great. So what can I do for you? He says, you've already done it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just called to say thank you. I said, thanks for what? Because, you know, when I got to the scene, everything was over. The guy had been arrested, you know, the whole nine yards. I said, thanks for what? He says, um, you know, that down officer rescue course that was going on? I said, yeah. He says, I know you were instrumental with Marlon and Dr. Obershaw, who was the instructor, insisting that that be taught in end service. I said, yeah. He said, well, I was in that class last Thursday, the week before he got shot. And he said, during this incident, all I could hear was the what the instructors were saying. This is going to happen. This is what you're going to do. This is what you need not to do. He says, and that guided me through that incident. He says, and I'm just calling to tell you that had I not had that training last week, I don't know that I would have done as well or survived this incident as well as I did. I just wanted to call and say thank you. And it just took my breath away. I just sat there on the phone, dead silence. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it's, it was a defining moment in my training career where it, where it brings, and they tell you when you go to instructor school. You're responsible for everything you say, for everything you don't say, for everything you do, for everything you don't do. And you take notes and you pass the test and yeah, okay, whatever. But when something like this happens, you realize what the influence is when you have students before you and the responsibility that you have to those individuals and to their families <laughs> and to the general public. It is domino effect. People talk about trainers and people say, well, it's an elite group. I, I say it's unique. Elite it is, but I would say unique because 
it's far-reaching. The umbrella of responsibility spans everything. That was the the defining moment in my training career. You've done a lot of trainings over the years. Mm -hmm. It can get very draining. And and I don't want to use the word monotonous, but that's the only one that comes to mind. When you're delivering that material for the 10th time in a two-week period. Right. But I go back to the music because I think there are so many parallels in the music world. A band that does it well, it doesn't matter if it's at the beginning of their worldwide tour or at the end of the worldwide tour. It doesn't matter this the 30th time that you've done this playset. For those people in the audience, it's the first time they've heard you. And if they're able to deliver it, it seems like it's their first time as well. And instructors are the same way. And it's very difficult, though, not to get that, oh, my goodness, let's cut corners. You know, it's Friday. This is day 10 of 10 to just cut corners. Even if you don't cut corners, it's hard to keep that enthusiasm and carry that enthusiasm too. But the way in which we deliver the material has a tremendous impact on it as well. Yes, being a musician, our our music is a great example. I have one of the, matter of fact, I think he's the only officer still with our, our agency that went to the academy with me. He's one of our senior school resource officers. He's a musician, very talented saxophone player. He and I just talking because I know enough about playing music to get myself in a lot of trouble. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I asked him, I says, you know, Harold, you know, gig after gig after gig, song after, you know, he says, yeah, it can be monotonous, but he says, you know, there's nothing like the live performance. There's nothing like feeding off the audience. They will guide you what you need to do and when you need to do it. The same is true for trainers. Every class is different. Uh, You may get a bunch of corrections officers. So an honorable job. Work corrections for 18 months. First 18 months of of my career was in corrections. And, you know, it's a very honorable job. And it's hard to find people that want to do that for a career. If you've got a predominant amount of corrections officers, your analogies need to be geared that way so they can identify with it. If your class is predominantly command staff, Well, you need to kind of gear it and tweak it a little bit so they can understand it. Or detectives, read your group, read your audience and feed off of them. And as as you become an experienced instructor, you know what's working. You know when they're turning you off and, and you need to adjust. You can't just keep plugging along if it's not working you need to you need to change it up a bit it's easy on the student side too wouldn't you agree that if we're doing stop the bleed training this could be day one of this year but this could be the 12th time i've gone through it in my career right you know it's like oh my goodness let's just get done with this stuff hearing that guy's story said that you were guiding me through the incident I mean, think think about that. You, you were my guide. You, you, I was following you in that incident. And without that, I don't know if I would have made it. A very, very powerful statement. One of the best uh, examples that I use, we had an instructor with our sheriff's office, and she taught CPR and first aid. And you can't get any more dry than CPR and first aid, <laughs> uh, especially when, the, uh, and I won't say the vendor, but the vendor that we use went to all video training. I mean, if you could put in a VHS, tell you how long ago it was, mm-hmm. and you can put a VHS tape in and push play and pause, you could teach CPR first aid. But her approach was, hey, this is mandated by the state. We got to do this annual certification. We all know it. I don't care if you learn this 
for the clowns we're dealing with on the street. And everybody kind of looked at her. She said, but all of you have children. What if you're at a ball game and a kid comes out with heat stroke? What if you're at the camp and somebody falls out of a deer stand and now they're bleeding profusely? What if you're here and some and, and this kid's drowning? What if you're here and, and, and your mother-in-law or your mom gets a burn? I want you to know this to take care of your family. And her classes were a success from then on because it related to something. Hey, yeah, you can use this in your job, but this is also to help you in your everyday life. This may be important to someone who you actually know. Yeah. You may need to stop your partner's bleeding, but the truth of the matter is you may need to stop your life partner's bleeding at the scene of an accident. Correct. You you and I, we, we know that when an officer calls for help, we're going and we're going balls to the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But how are you going to react if it's your life partner? That's a good point. What, what, what's that going to do to your heart rate? And, and the more you have to cognitively think about those tasks right there, the less effective you become. And, and so trying to take that and, and take it from the abstract and bring it to the world of concrete for our people is the role of a trainer. It's not just about right. delivering the information. It's about showing the applicability of what we're supposed to be teaching. Correct. I, I've had a, a good friend of mine who was a paramedic for years and was also a deputy sheriff on, on my shift. Great guy. Great guy. And he told me one of the defining moments for him was as a paramedic, he's been to shootings. He's been to fatal car crashes, uh, seen every type of injury, medical condition you could think about. Never blinked. Blood, gore, he, he dealt with it. He's home one day and his granddaughter falls and cuts herself and he froze because it's his granddaughter and she's bleeding and he knows what to do. And he says, it wasn't that serious a thing. He said, but Mark, I'm going to tell you for four or five seconds, I stood there and was like, what do I do? It just, your knees buckle when it's, when it's your family. Absolutely. He says, and then of course it kicked in. Uh, and he says, so now I can get it when these officers are out there and, you, you, you know, firemen, police officers, EMTs, we work with the same people, daytime, nighttime, weekday, weekends, they're our family. When they get hurt, the same thing happens. We know what to do, but it may take a second or two for it to kick in, get going. And once you get going, then, you know, as, as Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman says, you know, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall to the level of your training. Absolutely. That is the other thing that we push is that's why we train so hard, because if you're going to fall to the level of your training, I want your level of training to be as highest as possible. Yeah, I want it to be a short fall. If you Absolutely. fall a long ways, people get hurt. But uh, yeah. there was something else you said that, that I thought was really interesting. Uh, you talked about how once you got the thumbs up from the SWAT doc, hey, uh-huh. he's going to be okay. Th- then you said, uh, I could calm down and we could do what needed to be done at the scene. Right. It, it, up until then, it's still in question. And, and listen, before people start sending in hate mail and stuff like that, okay, I am not saying I disagree with this decision. I'm just trying to show how unique law enforcement is. I believe his name is Hamlin, was the uh, uh, Buffalo Bills defensive back that last year uh, during a game took the direct blow to the chest. And, Correct. And, and his heart stopped beating and, and they started doing CPR uh, on the field. Well, they ended up canceling the rest of the game. And it absolutely was the right call. It yes. absolutely was. I'm not saying it's not. What I'm saying, though, is when an incident like that happens in law enforcement, when one of our brothers or sisters is involved in a shooting and they're wounded and uh, they go down, we don't get to cancel the rest of the game. 
The scene no. still has to be investigated. We, we still have to go through and we have to go, not just that call, we've got to answer all the other calls for service that are coming in. Life continues to go on and we're expected to handle it with the same professionalism and effectiveness after that type of incident as we did before that type of incident. That only comes about, only comes about if we have the proper training. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because let's face it, when a citizen calls 911, whether it's fire, police or EMS, it's an emergency to them. I have responded to a 911 calls with our agency where it was an elderly lady and her toilet was overflowing. Not a great emergency in the wide scope of the world, but to her, this was tragic. They don't care. They don't know whether you just left the scene of a of a fatal crash or an officer injury, they have an emergency and they need help. And they've been told you call this number and the fire police EMS come there and they're going to handle it. And you're expected to do that and do it in a professional manner. It's not an easy task. It's not an easy task at all. My mom, who has been a guest on this podcast, if she called, that's what I would expect of law enforcement in her area. And if I have that expectation of the people who are policing her, then there should be no less of an expectation I have for myself in the way that I handle those same types of calls that come in in my jurisdiction. And, and, you know, with Bert's incident, uh, I'm going to give a little hint to my age. I can still remember watching Johnny Carson at night. Okay, And, and, and Buddy Hackett, of all people, saying the key to being a great comic is timing. Timing here was was exquisite. Not that. It was a good time for Bert to get shot, but that was 2015. And in 2013, 2014, the Louisiana Post Council made a decision to transfer or, or transition, I should say, not transfer, transition to providing all of their academy level training in corrections, firearms, and basic law enforcement in the adult learning model because they realized that adults learn differently than children. Pedagogy versus andragogy. With that, looking at Bert's incident, with the downed officer rescue class, it wasn't just sitting there and doing the stop the bleed. It wasn't just showing a PowerPoint videos. We had the officers doing tourniquet drills. We had them doing tourniquet drills on one another. We had uh, some role play in the middle of the part of the class. It was an eight hour class all day long. At the end, we actually had simunition where they were doing force on force drills and they were having to apply tourniquets to themselves. And, and we were taping one arm down saying, hey, that arm's not functional. How are you going to do this? Those types of things. And after Bert's incident, our conversation on that Sunday afternoon, I went back to our training commander and said, we got to do more of this and we got to do it better. It's working, but there's a lot of things that could have been a lot worse. We were lucky and I don't like being lucky. I'd rather be good. You're, you're so passionate about this, though. That, that you're actually going to be delivering a class on this very topic uh, about learning and, and the way Correct. that we need to be training our people coming up. What is it? September 19th, uh, you and I are going to be in Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, we're going to be uh, delivering a class. And your portion of the day deals directly with what you just said, that, that we have to train them as an adult. And basically, if we want them to respond as an adult. It, we can't you, you can't use kindergarten methods and expect adult responses. No, I, I mean, it, it has proven itself time and time again. And it's one of the times where I can say, you know, finally, the state of Louisiana is not in the lower half of anything. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, that they've they've stepped up and it's and and it's been remarkable. And I will tell you, when this first came about, I kind of sat there as an academy director or an assistant academy director at the time, going, "Why are why are we changing everything?" When he explained it, I was like, "Okay, I'll give it a shot. I'll go look at it and see." And it works. Uh, it's scientifically proven to work. The state of Louisiana only mandated it in the classroom portion. Okay, for standard basic academy and corrections academy curriculum and firearms curriculum. But it can be done. It has a pathway to be done furthermore into practical exercises, into reality based training, into scenario training, uh, even into force investigations and other types of, of law enforcement operations. And the limit is just the limit is simply how for or how much does that agency want to commit to or doesn't want to commit to. Uh, It's exciting because you have agencies out there that are like, we want to take this to the next level. And the expectations and the rewards are limitless. It's just it's it's up to how far that age individual agency or instructor wants to take it. The the truth of the matter is, uh, if we're unwilling to invest up front, there's going to be investment on the back end. And unfortunately, in many cases, if we fail to train on the front end, the cost is paid by the individual members on the back end uh, in terms of injuries, in, in terms of, in some cases, even death, or, or perhaps they lose their job or they lose their freedom. There's a price to be paid, but no one's arguing that. Really, what it comes down to for an agency is to decide, do I want to pay it now or pay it later? But it's going to be paid. Correct. Yes, yes. And the message is the transition to using that adult learning method. The the investment is minimal as far as dollars and cents, but the reward in your most valuable resource, which is your human resource, is a hundredfold over because they get the officers involved and the trainers involved and the investigators involved in human factors you know, uh, vision, memory, attention, speed and performance, critical decision making. They experience it, which is what's going to happen in real life. We cannot make it exactly as real life because, yes, there are safety precautions and there are, you know, those in training, those those simulations, you know, that there, there's uh, accepted unrealistic parts of, of training that, that we have to Except because we, we, we are going to do it safely. We don't, we're not going to get anybody hurt. However, putting these officers through that and getting them as close to and as realistic as possible to let them experience that stimulus of anticipation or anxiety or tunnel vision or whatever it may be. And then showing them how what they were taught in the classroom or taught in the gym, they can now apply it. It ain't got to be perfect as long as it accomplishes the objective and is objectively reasonable, that's good enough. You know, this is not like a Olympic gymnastic competition where you got to be a 10.0. Yeah, no, uh, as long as we can get the guy, stop, stop the resistance and get the guy in custody and, and stop him from hurting innocent people, we win. That's, that's the objective and that can, that can be done, but it needs to be done reality-based training, force on force. I'm a big proponent of that. You cannot, and simulators and virtual reality are a step in the right direction, but they're no substitute for another human being on the opposite side. And I like the word you use, they experience it. That that experiential learning is the way to go. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and the adult learning method will show you there's, there's four primary learning 
traits for adults, but adults will learn from all four. Every person has a primary one or two primary ones that they, they learn best from, but they will learn from all four that experiential learning is the key. It's putting everything, it kind of wraps everything else together and it gives them, uh, as a, a very good friend of mine who retired from uh, our neighboring agency who does critical incident debriefing, explains how the brain works. Says, you know, the brain is like a file cabinet. And when it has an experience, it creates an index card and puts it in a file. And then later on, when you experience something, it's going through the file cabinet very, very fast, looking for that card to find it, that snapshot of what do I do? How do I respond to this? And that's what we're creating with reality-based training with following up with the adult learning method is here's what may happen. And it's kind of that been there, done that, got the t-shirt type of a thing. So that when they get into a real life situation, they're not buffering where the brain gets jammed up and it's like a computer with too many programs open and the cursor is just making the circle. We don't want the human brain to do that because while that's happening, the bad guy is making positive decisions. Exactly. They're, They're gaining on you. So we want you to be able to find that that index card, find that file and be able to take a positive action. May not be the best opportunity, but the, the best response, but as long as it's objectively reasonable, we can live with that. That that's the standard. Absolutely. And, and and as we're wrapping things up and we really appreciate your time today, speaking of experiences, th- there's another program that you're involved in and I believe it's your agency they they bring in young people. And they're able to take a look behind the scenes kind of at law enforcement and to get an idea, uh, because the truth of the matter is uh, it's expensive to train people in this profession. And so I would rather have people having these experience, getting a peek behind the curtain before they come in the profession to say, yeah, you know, that's really not for me. It's better for them and it's better for us as a profession. But uh, real quickly, what can you tell us about that program, uh, what it's designed to do and and how it's working for you guys? Yeah, it's a new program that we just started uh, this year, as a matter of fact, with the St. Charles Parish Public School System and the St. Charles Parish Sheriff's Office. We have, uh, I believe there's 18 or 19 high school students they're juniors and seniors it's an elective for them uh which is a criminal justice course so what they do is they come to the sheriff's office one hour a day every day of the week for the entire fall semester and as they come through different divisions in the in the sheriff's office are presenting curriculum to them on what that division does and how it integrates with the overall operation of the sheriff's office. So uh, two weeks ago, the training division, we had a whole week. We had them for five days. And uh, our new director of training, the gentleman, uh, the young man who, who took my place, Darren Grow, headed up everything, did a great job. The whole training staff did a great job and, and kind of presented to them the difference between reasonable suspicion and probable cause. And gave them some Fourth Amendment issues on objective reasonableness and the Fourth Amendment and the Graham factors and the totality of the circumstances and walked them through that. And then uh, they got to do some virtual reality training with our, our Taser VR goggles. They actually fired the new Taser 7 at, at some, some targets. We did a couple of uh, case studies with some actual dash cam, body cam video and had them break it down as to was the officer's actions reasonable? Well, why was it? What was the probable cause? What were the gram factors? And they did exceptionally well. We're getting a really great response from it. And they're doing this with every division, investigations, uniform patrol, 
fleet maintenance, uh, IT, the records division, the tax collection division. They're going to they're going to go through all, all the different divisions in the sheriff's office, so they get an idea of not only what does the sheriff's office do. It's we're we're not just a group that puts people in jail. There's much more to it than that. And there's a ton of job opportunities there other than being a uniformed policeman. The main goal is to see how it all integrates and how it serves the public and how it serves the community. These young people are, are engaged and we're getting a phenomenal response to it. So it's a pilot program. This is the first semester. And based on what we've seen so far, I, I see it continuing. I think that's fantastic because I don't want to say you're on the back end of your career, but we'll say that the second half of your career and sooner or later, the, 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 those positions have to be filled and being able to have influence on those that might fill it, I, I think is again, one of those things, who knows what impact you're going to have on somebody 30 years from now uh, because no, they no. came through this thing. It, it's just such a, a great program, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing here in a few weeks. I think we're going to have a great time together. Um, hopefully we're not going to have any uh, 2 a.m. talks because I am old and I need my <laughs> sleep and uh, start sounding like Charlie Brown's teacher if I don't get enough sleep uh, before I teach. But, man, we appreciate you taking time out of your vacation schedule to be with us today. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it and looking forward to our time in Biloxi as well as uh, Shelby County and uh, any other time we can get together. Roger that. Uh, the bottom line is just to put that information out there and, and uh yeah, one of those keys to leadership is, you know, at some point in time, you have to realize you're going to have to train your successor because if you don't, it's going to that that role is going to be vacant and, and you're responsible for that vacancy and that void. So we, we need to train we need to train our successors. And that, that's kind of the goal we have. Absolutely. Brent, having impact on a life threatening situation, even when you're not there, I can't think of a higher praise for a trainer than that. Yeah, some takeaways from the, this episode today, we, we hear, we talk about training and how important it is, but to put it in context of a real life situation, uh, you know, how that impacted that situation, that really shines a lot on how important training is. And the fact that something we say at church a lot is this Sunday is someone's first Sunday, and that applies to training. You may have done it 10, 15 times, but this is the first time somebody else is hearing it. So it's extremely important to get your point across and that, you know, you get that same passion out that you have in the first class. You absolutely. Yep. Yep. Just as a musician, it's someone's first concert. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. If you want to find out more about the events with Virtual Academy, again, as I mentioned at the front of the episode, you can find them at virtualacademy.com. Just click on the tab that says events. And if you'd like to find out more and listen to some of the past episodes, you can find them all on our website at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. Com. Mark, thank you so much for taking an hour out of your vacation day. We certainly appreciate it. Some uh, insightful comments. Glad to do it. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. 